like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. We're going to let you know what we're attempting to do uh, tonight. Uh, there's kind of a plan, a method. Uh, since uh, we're playing three shows in your neighborhood. And uh, we've worked up about 70 songs for this tour. We thought we would... Uh, We'd play three nights without repeating a song. And get to every song. However, we thought we were playing about 70 songs. We're actually, I think we're playing about 105. And the main set is usually about 17. This would put it about 35 songs a night. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the jump. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and it's finally here after half a year of hype because we revealed what we were doing back in january for those paying attention after half a year of doing 2003 shows from australia from japan from florida up until what we did the past couple weeks dallas bonner springs we are finally at what is considered the coup de gras of the 2003 tour year and not only that but what's considered the coup de grave maybe all of the pearl jam live history this is night one of the mansfield experiment july 2nd 2003 out of mansfield massachusetts there's a lot to get to folks i'm sure you guys know exactly what's going on and if you don't enjoy the ride randy Sobel over here john farrar over there Hello, hello. 
what's your excitement level at? Because I'm at like a 50 out of 10. Yeah, yeah. Been waiting on these for a while. I mean, this is one that I have a definite memory of because this was like, you know, I've talked about it before where kind of in the early 2000s, I was kind of like getting out of Pearl Jam a little bit. Like I would dip in here and there. And I remember this being a big catalyst in me coming back and being like, all right, there's still something here for me. Like they can still surprise me and, and pull something out. When I heard about, you know, what was going on in Mansfield, it was like, okay, you've, you've got my interest now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to start getting back into this again. Right. Yeah. And I think for me kind of in the other direction was that I was finding myself getting back into it. But I wasn't really fully in just yet. Like 2006 was really the kind of the coming out party where by the fall, I I knew as much as I could. Like I knew nearly everything. But I just remember one day I was at former co-host of the podcast, Matt's house. His brother, Steve, who has been on the podcast many a times, came home from the San Francisco shows. And I'm like, whoa, they did three shows in San Francisco. You went to all three. And how much different songs they played. He was like, oh, it was basically three completely different sets. So then that conversation went into what happened in Mansfield conversation. I'm like, ooh, I'm hooked by this. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff I like. I remember used to go to shows and I used to see bands like twice in a week and they'd have the same exact set list. I'm like, why am I going to pay for that? And, well, with this band, as we all know, their calling card is to do the unique set list and kind of change it up. If they're playing two nights in one venue, nothing's going to be the same. And for three nights in this venue, there's one thing that was the same, but that was after a lot of begging to, to get that to happen. But 97 total songs were played over the stretch of these three nights. It's pretty incredible to think about. It's almost a Herculean task to think about even a band that's been around for as long as they had at the time, you know, 13 years is not the 30 plus that we're at now, but it's still like they're an established band with an established catalog that's pretty substantial at the time. So, but even then, like not repeating any songs, like we come on here every week and talk about these things and we, we get on runs with songs and we talk about, you know, almost every time we're talking about a live and even flow and porch and all these different things, but we're going to get three weeks in a row here where we're only going to have one song that's repeated that we're going to talk about. So that I think is the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is just the differentiation for the next three weeks of just like, we're going to get to talk about so many things that we don't normally talk about. Yeah. Weirdly, it's kind of like the Pearl Jam all-star game in a way you're getting guys from the no code era coming in and guys coming back from the yield era and guys that were just there and by an all and they're all coming back. They're all coming together. And it's like, they're greeting each other and mixed with the September call-ups that, uh, <laughs> that we never get to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Right. Help, help, help and get right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just a celebration of Pearl jam is what it is. And yeah, what a beautiful thing that they created for this. It was just an experiment, an idea. And to be honest with you, I've mentioned this on the show before, but it felt like, with these shows happening and then sandwiched in between the, of course, the MSG show that happened, like this is really the week that turned Pearl Jam into a pretty damn good rock band, pretty much into Legends. So that's the story we're going to tell when we talk about this for the next yeah, three weeks. I think like I talk about that, you know, that two week run in 1994 in the beginning of April as being like 
probably the most eventful two weeks, plus like some of the best shows they've ever played in a two week period. But this run in, you know, late June, early July of 2003 is right there as well. Like about four, five, six of the best shows they've ever played. Yeah, I think on the 1994 front, that's like the best of the prime. And this is like the best of Pearl Jam as the veteran band. Yeah, it's a different era. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we're going to get into a lot of stories here over the next three shows. There's going to be a lot of stories being told, and I won't ruin some things from the stories, but there is one thing that a lot of the stories do talk about that I wanted to bring up, and it is what kind of led to there being three shows in Mansfield. So I went back, I had a picture on my phone of the original schedule and the original list of shows. And there were a lot in late June and early July that we know and love today. A lot of those shows that weren't scheduled yet. If you look, 7-2 was the only thing from Mansfield. And piecing together, because everybody kind of has their different story, you know, 20 years later, things do get a little bit fuzzy. But piecing it together, I believe what happened was that... On the day that they went on sale on Ticketmaster, showed up the second night from the third. So that was available there, and that wasn't technically a 10-club show. That's at least what I'm gathering. Other people have said it was a 10-club show, but I'm gathering that that was kind of a, a surprise that popped up the day that it came for sale on Ticketmaster. And then a couple weeks after that is when they put the 11th on sale. That's at least what I'm recalling from a couple of these stories from people that have relayed this to me over the past, because obviously I didn't live through it. So that sounds pretty accurate, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't involved with the whole ticket thing for this tour because I didn't get to go see them. But yeah, it sounds about right. And it's a little strange, too, to do two nights and then come back over a week later and do the third night. I mean, we talked about those Universal City shows in 2009 a few weeks back where they did two dates and then came back a few days later and did the other two dates. But yeah, it's kind of a strange way to go about doing it because like, you're working on this experiment. You, they, they've got this plan, but then it's going to be broken up. Like They're going to go to Philly and, and New York City and then come back. And like, it was a strange way to do it. But I think like once they figured out the plan, they, they made it work. Yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. And I, I wonder, because that, that for there being a third show, and it's not like they hadn't been playing there. They played Great Woods in, in 98, yeah. and they played there in 2000. So this isn't a new venue for them. But I don't know. Like, I'm not going to really say in hindsight that they decided that three shows would mean that they would work on this. But I wonder if they had something in their head that's like, hey, if we had the opportunity, would we do it? Don't know. That is all speculation. But obviously, we know what happened. And that's important enough. Before we get into some stories, though, let's tell Ed's side of the story here. Because I think one of the things that is really interesting about these three nights is that everybody talks about just the excitement of it. And I think what we don't realize is what the band had to go through to make it all work. Because a lot of these songs, you know, some of them they're playing every single night, like Save You and I Am Mine and Alive and Even Flow, on and on and on. And others 
are the ones that maybe they've been pulling off like two or three times on this tour. There are going to be a lot of them at this show, like Light Years, Evacuation, obviously Help Help and Get Right didn't really get played in the set list too much at this time. But they have to memorize all of these songs and get them right. And you can't go back the next night and be like, man, we didn't play this song as well as we would have liked. Let's try it again. Or they don't have the opportunity on the second night or the first night to play something big. On the first night, they play even flow. Second night, they have to restructure and figure out, okay, what's that spot for Mike going to be? They play alive on the second night, on the first night. Okay, we got to figure out how to get another song that's going to work the crowd the same way alive does. So, John, it's been a while since we've done story time from PJ20, but I believe yeah, today yeah. needs to break the streak. Yeah, if everyone will turn to page 274 in their Pearl Jam 20 books, there's a really, it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's really worthwhile because, you know, having read this cover to cover when I first got it, this is one of the things that sticks out to me that I remembered as soon as I saw this, because it is kind of an insight into the way Ed thinks about things. So he says, it would be a lot easier to play a similar set every night. It would be so much easier on all of us. And yet we can't find it in ourselves to do that. We just can't. And whether I'm the driving force behind that feeling of not repeating ourselves, even if we hadn't played in the place for 10 years, I don't want to play the same songs we played 10 years ago, except for maybe some of the ones that they'd like to hear, you know? Johnny Ramone had a thing about letting people hear the songs they've come to know and love. And that was one of the things I kind of acquiesced to over the years, putting in hit songs. I mean, I guess if you've got them, you should play them, but not all on one night. And he says he laughs. And like, that is kind of the push and pull, like the dichotomy of the set list. It's like, you've got these big crowd favorite songs and then you've got these deep cuts and it's always like pushing and pulling, like which one are you going to get? Are you going to get more of the hits? Are you going to get more of the deep cuts? He continues on, he says, when you get to the size of the places that we're playing, you want to make it enjoyable for all so they can rock out to the songs that they fell in love to and songs that got them through things, just like songs did for me. And so you play those. It becomes a real Rubik's Cube kind of a thing. A set list back in 1991 or 92 was 10 songs long, and in 1994 they were 20 songs long. And that was still all the songs we knew how to play. Now there's more than 100. So the puzzle gets more detailed, the strokes are finer, and there's an art to it. It would be great to just think of the audience as your blank canvas and that you can paint whatever you want on it, but they deserve more than just scribble. And then there's a little postscript here from Jeff that says, Boston Mansfield 03 was an exercise in challenging ourselves. It was a shitload of work, but really fun, even when something ended up as a train wreck. You know, that, that's funny. Jeff just kind of has so little to say, but in essentially the same way gets to the point that Ed got yeah. to. Yeah. So, you know, obviously different ways to go for different human beings, but yeah, that's all really, really interesting right there. And that should give you an idea of where their heads were at with this. But yeah, cause some people are like, I just want deep cuts. I just want deep cuts. I, I, I don't want to hear Jeremy ever again. I don't want to hear even flow ever again, but some people are like, they go to the show and they want to hear those songs. They want to hear the songs they fell in love to. They want to hear Alive and Jeremy. And like, that's what makes them a great live band. And what makes the set list so compelling is that you've got both forces pushing and pulling on each other. That's really, really interesting. Yep. And then those deep cuts later on, as they keep developing live, Present Tense is a really good example of that. This version of Present Tense could be helping that factor, but that's a song that once it hit a stride everybody was singing along mm, to yeah. it. So yep. Yep. that'll well, come. 
It's almost as if the songs have gone through revolution. Hmm. Gee, Mm. I wonder when that will come up again. Mm. Probably pretty soon. So, all right, now we're going to get to all of your stories here. We're going to tell a couple on each episode. So we'll start with a couple today. We'll do some on the second night. We'll do some on the third night as well. And the one I want to start off with is one that was told to us way back when he had his Horizon Profile episode, probably in 2021. And I just kind of remember this. And while thinking about wanting to put these stories together, for the episode, I thought that his story would be the perfect one to lead off with because it's kind of the beginning of all this. So Zach Fields from Brooklyn, New York, went to all three of the shows and he says, I'm privileged to say that these were the first three shows of my Pearl Jam touring career. This was the summer before I started college and I had become such a super fan post 2000 tour due in part to the 2000 bootlegs. Each night was a memorable night in its own right. The first night, I met Eddie. Yes, this was the time where Eddie had been riding his bike around parking lots before shows. We had also heard rumblings about the band not repeating any songs. My high school buddy Ryan and I got to Mansfield early in the day to stand in that long 10 club line and grab our tickets. Which, for memberships that started in 2001 and 2002, it was a pretty decent seat. So we got our seats and proceeded to wait in the parking lot. Then, Eddie rode by. The short hair made him stand out less than usual, but we knew it was him based on reports that he had been doing this. So we sauntered over to the group surrounding Eddie, and shyly said hello and shook his hand. He was so kind and gracious. As we walked away, he continued to ride his bike next to us, and my friend blurted out, Is it true you're going to play every song? Eddie replied, You know, I was working it out on the bus, and it's going to be tough, but we're going to do our best. Uh, real quick, I gotta jump in here. I, I can totally picture him. Oh, you know, uh, I was oh, yeah. I was working it out on the bus. It's gonna be tough, but we're. Uh, you know, you can totally see him just kind of the way he's he talks. Yeah, him. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He knows in the back of his head is like, yeah, we have this plan, but I don't want to give up the whole thing. It, it, like the next story will kind of tell you that it goes even further back than this night. So he then told us to be safe and then rode away, and we texted everyone about this experience. Back to the shows, they were so good and the band was tight, and the sound in that amphitheater on three beautiful summer nights, just wow. It hit me once Go kicked in that this was happening. On night two, we sat around the lawn with a big group of high school friends, so it was a different experience, but I found this to be the best night from how well the band played. Night three, I can't recall when the show was scheduled, but it was after night two, and then came rumors of the acoustic set. So yeah, I saw it all, and it was amazing. Suffice it to say, these three nights in the summer of 2003 were so special and solidified Pearl Jam as the band I knew would be with me forever and would also be there to comfort me in times of trouble and take happy times to new heights. Thank you, Zach. Was waiting for that one. Really excited that we got to tell it. Nice, nice. Uh, I've got one from Chris here who also went to all three nights. He says, The experiment was a resounding success. An incredibly exciting stretch of shows, possibly the most thrilling 10-day stretch in the band's history. We heard the rumor that Ed was riding his bike before one of the Toronto shows and stopped to talk with fans. He mentioned the idea of playing their whole catalog during the Mansfield run. Boston area crowds are always electric, 
The anticipation before a Pearl Jam show is second to none, and for those of us armed with that anecdote, we were even more stoked prior to Mansfield 1. Once Ed confirmed it early into night one, the whole place went to another level. To be witness to their creativity, endurance, and commitment over that stretch was special. It all led up to a ridiculous night three. I was in New York City for the MSG shows when word broke that Pearl Jam was going to play an early extra set on the 11th to try and complete the experiment. The anticipation of what was to come was incredible. That we had such a special night to look forward to after seeing them at MSG, degrees of greatness only this band can provide. Thankfully, traffic didn't prevent us from being in the room on night three. When the band took the stage at 6 p.m. for their first set, hearing Ed say good morning struck the right chord. The sun was shining, Pearl Jam was on stage. It was going to be a long night of music. The energy and anticipation was as hyped as any of the almost 80 Pearl Jam shows I've seen. Folks were reluctant to sit even after Ed asked them to. One of the longtime Boston Globe music writers included it in his top 10 shows of all time. That first set remains one of the great performances in their history. The only thing I'm disappointed about is that a video doesn't exist of that show. Holy grail. Yeah, I wish that there were a video for that, too. That's yeah, no, no video for any of these shows, really. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really disappointing. But it kind of adds to the legend of it. As we talked a couple weeks ago about Bonner Springs, right. it's, there's an air of mystery on it. Let's tell Ethan's story. Ethan from Grafton, Massachusetts, who was only at this show. This was my first Pearl Jam show. After falling in love with them in the late 90s, I was super pumped to finally see them live. I had graduated college in May, and I was about to start an internship in New York City. I moved into my New York City apartment the day before the show, so I was planning to make the drive to Mansfield as soon as I got done with work that day. Unfortunately, I woke up the morning of the show, which happened to be my first morning in New York, to my car with the driver's side door completely smashed in. Ooh, that's awful timing. But welcome to New York. Long story short, it turns out a truck had hit it the previous night. I spent the morning scrambling to get a rental car, got to work late, and finally around 5 p.m. started the nearly four-hour drive to Mansfield. To be honest, I don't remember much about the show itself other than the emotion that I felt when they hit their first note. From the absolute terror of the morning, when I thought that I wouldn't be able to even make the show, to the elation I felt when they started playing, it was a roller coaster day to say the least. Since then, I've seen them six more times, but nothing compares to the first time. That's right. He's got it right on the money, and hopefully your car is fine now, 20 years later. Cutting it it close, leaving it five for a four-hour drive. He must have made it just in time. There's a lot of in this, and I fully understand, complaining about Connecticut traffic. So Mm, as we go on, we'll, we'll hear more about it. Yeah. All right, I've got one here from Mike Moyer, who went to all three shows as well. He says, wow, 20 years, crazy. I was lucky enough to win 10 clip tickets to the first two shows, section one right in front of Mike both nights. The second and third were epic, Ocean's Opener on night one, and then into really harder tracks. It was so awesome. We stayed at some dump hotel off of Route 140 across from a 99 and tailgated on the lawn, blaring Pearl Jam all day before walking to Greywoods. On the third, I got to hear Love Boat Captain, which I'd never heard live before, and thought, wow, a whole week until something better than these shows? Not a chance. I was in grad school at the time and working at CVS in Medford when I heard on WBCN at about 3 p.m. that Pearl Jam would be taking the stage at 5.30 sharp. 
They were going to try and play every Pearl Jam song they ever wrote. Holy shit. The entire catalog. I still get goosebumps. I frantically called my friends in Stoneham and in Quincy, and we all somehow got off work within an hour and hit the road. We had seats in Section 11, but lucky for me, I wore the same shorts the week before and magically found my Section 1 ticket stub. We arrived, and I said, see you guys later. I'm not missing this. I ran and could hear the beginning of Long Road and went directly to security, covered the date on my stub, and sat in Section 1, Row 6 for the entire set. My friends to this day still hate me for doing it, but it had to be done. The rest of the show was amazing as well and was capped by a rare fight. My friend from Quincy, Bobby Austin, was urinated on by some poor kid sitting behind us. He pushed him instead of punching him out, which he could have, and the security guard came over and said, What happened? Well, sir, he took a piss on my leg, and he was escorted out. As Ed said at the beginning of the set, pace yourself, it's going to be a long night. Apparently, my friend didn't listen. Yeah, don't mess with Bobby from Quincy, guys. Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or anybody from Quincy. For real, yeah. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, Yeah. thanks, Mike. All right, let's go to Matthew Gagne from Maine, who was also at all three shows. I received fan club seats for the first two shows, and the third was added later, so the 10 club was not offering tickets to the show. And a handful of other crazy fans waited and slept outside the Tweeter Center at an opportunity for a potential ticket drop from Ticketmaster as the show was sold out. On the day of the show, the ticket window was slowly releasing a few tickets here and there, and there was always this stress about taking the tickets that they had to get into the show or wait for potentially better seats. Some of us waiting kept the tickets, and I was there alone and only needed one. As a lot of us waiting got tickets throughout the day, I was the only one left. It was a few hours until the gate opened, and I was told by the box office that they had one ticket remaining. I bought the ticket so I can get in, and noticed after that it was the second row, left side of the stage. There were rumors of Pearl Jam coming out early, so we were all at our seats, right as we were allowed in, and then the experiment came to fruition. Still one of the best Pearl Jam shows I've seen in the 30 shows of theirs that I've attended. I also got Mike's pick and an AP signed and numbered poster as well. Amazing night, seeing the kid from the trailer park on stage as Pearl Jam had invited that neighborhood behind the center to avoid the fine for breaking the curfew. Needless to say, the curfew was broken. Always love to break the curfew and always love a good ticket story. Thank you so much, Matthew. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Last one here from Tom Gregory. He went to nights one and three. He says, night one was my second Pearl Jam show ever, and I was excited to be introducing two good friends to their first live Pearl Jam experience. Little did I know what was in store as it included one of my most vivid Pearl Jam memories I've ever experienced, and it wasn't even a song. Just from Ed's intro of, since we're playing three shows in your neighborhood, I gotta admit, I kind of blacked out. Not from any substance, mind you. It was jumping to my wildest Pearl Jam conclusions of them playing three shows with no repeats. And to further ice the icing, the dramatic pause after the end get to every song was capped with, we're actually playing about 105. In that moment, I do believe the hairs on my arms stood straight up and grew their own arms, and those arm hairs stood up as well, if that makes any sense. And then his story from night three, I missed night two as I already had plans for an early July 4th extravaganza with some people visiting from out of town. But after night one, I knew I had to get my hands on the night three ticket. I opted for will call because I didn't know if my ticket would arrive on time. But once I heard on the radio and online that Pearl Jam would be starting before the opening act, I knew this decision might come back to bite me. 
And also, did I mention I turned 21 between night one and night three? That may have also contributed. On the afternoon of the show, I met with some friends to tailgate and enjoy some legal adult beverages. But in my enthusiasm to celebrate, I forgot there was the will call line I had to wade through with the early showtime fast approaching. And what felt like an hour wait actually wasn't so bad, I finally got my ticket. Hearing the opening chime of Long Road with three people still in front of you in the ticket line can really warp your sense of time. It was such a strange experience to have your ticket checked and then immediately breaking into a sprint because you're hearing the headliner starting the show. Anytime I'm at a show now, just killing time in my seat, wondering when the heck the main event is going to hit the stage, I think of this time where Pearl Jam actually beat me to it. And I wasn't alone. Many people were trying to find their seats during the first few songs, but I'd say by halfway into the acoustic set, it was pretty full. The early start time audible and the concert traffic bottlenecked the proceedings a bit. Overall, it was an amazing night, and listening back, it's pretty impressive how the end of the set still sounded pretty strong, considering how fried they must have been. And people forget they had a show the next night, too. Just crazy. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the next night, they weren't in that good of a mood because they had to yeah. go. They couldn't even celebrate what they had just done. They had to go from yeah. Mansfield all the way to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yep. Yeah, not a lot of sweetness in that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we got only stories of the set remain. Here is night one of the experiment. Dead Man is the first song that we get here. It's a preset before the buzzcocks come on. I couldn't find a version of this. Could you? No, no. So Dead Man is crossed off the board. It's one of about like seven or eight Lost Dogs that they were played. And remember, Lost Dogs came out later that December, November. So a lot of those songs like Sad and All Night and some of those other ones hadn't debuted yet. So Dead Man had been played since about 1995, 1996. So there you go. And he was doing these presets pretty much every night. So that gave them a little feel to be like, you know, when they realized, oh, because of these curfews, we're not going to get to all the songs we wanted to. Let's come out and do a longer preset on the 11th on night three and get to it. Like these presets are important because it leads to them realizing on night three, like, hey, we can go out and play before Sleater Kinney and try to get some of these songs done and do some ones we don't normally do. It all comes off of Yvette coming out and doing these little presets. So, yeah, this is very cool. I wish we had it. Yeah, for sure. And I think a, a lot of that had to do with the curfew as well, that sure. they couldn't, they knew that they couldn't put 40 songs together with the same curfew that they were running at the previous two nights. So throw that into the mix. And I think everything worked out the way it should have. But the first song, first official song that you get from this night, from this experiment, is Oceans. <laughs> start here 
like I didn't think there was any like deep-seated meaning behind kicking off the series with Oceans. You know, sometimes they'll do something like that when it is a big show. But I think all of the meaning comes kind of in hindsight as being pretty significant here because this is the one that starts the whole entire thing. Some people might know and for some people they might even be anticipating like, okay, what are they going to start with? How's the show going to flow? How's it going to go? And to hear Oceans first, it's a pretty rare one for the time. So they're like, okay, here we go. Anything can happen at this point. So maybe that's the reason why they chose this one to be the first song. They're always, you know, we talked about there's this push and pull of like the big, like they could have come out with a release or Long Road or something like that. But maybe, you know, start with Oceans, let's just kind of ease into this a little bit. Like don't give them everything right from the beginning, right? They're not going to play all the popular stuff on night one. So you're going to get some things, some things are going to get worked in, but they're saving some things in the arsenal for later. First of all, Ed sounds amazing on this show. Like he's in absolute top form. The voice is in amazing form. And we've talked about it before where when the band knows something that the crowd doesn't know, it adds a little extra to the performances. Like they get that little extra on stage of like that, you know something you don't know. Like there's a little bit of the tension and a little bit of edge to it. Again, I wish we had a video because you know, you can almost hear them like smirking at each other. Like these people don't even know what they're in for. As for the performance, I thought Jeff was fantastic. There's a part where Cameron does a little bit more of like a straightforward beat on Oceans than kind of playing off the bass. Kind of switches to, I think, to more of just like a 4-4. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know that I had heard that before. But yeah, a great way to start off. So, yeah, they might start off easy, but it definitely doesn't last very long because the next three are going to be Go, Hell, Hell, Save You. Those are three really good ones off the bat, and it's it's funny because when you see this, you think this is a pretty normal setlist structure. They're not doing anything weird to anything yet. They're kind of staying and abiding by what they've created as the rules of Pearl Jam sets. It's not randomized, and it kind of, I guess, I don't know if it's just like, hey, let's just get to these three and just knock them off straight off the bat, or if it's like, let's make them think that this is a pretty normal thing that we're doing here, but, I mean, they shot out of cannon. Go is fast and furious, electrifying, ignites the fire for the entire show. Mike is a big highlight, and getting into Hell Hell, little things I always like to talk about with Ed saying something, and during the beginning chords, he just says, hi, everyone, and that kind of is a warm, kind of memorable moment from this that everybody can kind of remember as being unique to this show. But from Go, through Hell Hell, through Save You, this is good stuff to start off something important. Oh yeah, I thought Go was just phenomenal. You can tell Mike at the end of the solo, he throws in like a little bit of the whammy bar to be like, here we go, like they're already having fun with it a little bit. And then there's a part at the end where it just kind of devolves into chaos. The devolving into the chaos is also interesting because it's our first of many moments we'll go to Javier for this show. So what did you want to know about the devolving into chaos here? Yeah, so like... There's a part at the end and like it's a solo, but you can tell that like Mike is either just going crazy and like not worrying about 
fretting the strings the right way or it felt like I, you know again I wish we had a video that's really what I wanted kind of Javier to hit at is like how is he getting this kind of like otherworldly kind of demonic sound out of this guitar at the end here where it's you can tell it's not a straightforward guitar playing at the end there's just something else going on so I'm curious to see what he has to say well let's hear him say it John, hey everyone in the podcast, it is here. We are finally, finally covering this episode, The Manfields Experiment 2003. I'm so excited to start to talk about all this stuff that we want to know, right? Let's kick it off with Go. So I think everybody likes Go on the Pearl Jam catalog, right? Quick facts about Go is a song that is played in drop D. Both guitar players are playing in a drop D, meaning that the sixth string of the guitar is going to be dropped to a D note, and the rest of the guitar is going to be continued to be on E major. The really cool thing about this version is at the end, because I know that John wanted to explore a little bit more about like that chaos that you really hear at the end. When you make that sound at the end, like very squeaky sound that it sounds very full and rich, it is the combination of the wah pedal. In this case, it will be a Dunlop Q35 or 35Q that Mike uses, plus that Ibanez TS9 tube screamer that is gonna make your mid-range tone continue to push and drive the amp even further. But also, there's a pretty cool detail about the lick at the end. It is just not one single string. What you do, on the neck of the guitar is you grab in this case the E string which is the thinnest string on the neck is going to be on the 10th fret and then the B string is going to be in the 13th fret then you're going to start to bend full on and you're going to have the same note but it's going to sound richer and fuller also if you have that control over the wah pedal with the foot down is going to create this insane high pitch noise and if you go back and forth with your feet over the wah pedal it's going to sound like pure pure chaos which is a great ending for this song and yeah let's kick it off right we're going to get a couple more notes throughout the show tonight or this morning whatever you're listening to all right one of many from this show and honestly i think what we'll do is we'll play a couple of them in this episode and then we'll release a patreon exclusive for the other one which honestly we could do that every week because there's always ideas that he's coming up with that might just get left off the cutting room floor but yeah javier is going to get used to the full extent of these three shows just really to tie a bow on this section it feels fun focused tight loose tight within the performance they're not missing a beat on it but loose is the energy loose is what they're feeling on stage like it seems like they're coming out on this like feeling pretty good about things and it's kind of like a we're, we're a little scared of this but we're just gonna see how it goes and right from the start they're making good on it 
real quick, Ed says, good evening, and it's nice to be back in Boston. Thanks for coming out in such a large, organized, ready-to-go-for-it group. Should we have a Boston tea party or a Boston drink wine and wish you were passed out in prison party? Well, either might work. This section is deep, get right, and dissident. I thought Mike on deep, coming right out of the gate, scorching on this. Whoo. I mean, heavy, heavy on the slide, yeah. Excluding like 1994, 1995 versions of Deep, even go back to 92, 93, of course. This might be one of the most exciting and electric versions that I've heard in a very long time. <laughs> when we were talking about some of that binaural effect sound that he was doing in some of those songs you can hear it in the verses on this too and it's very good it's something i don't think i i I had noticed before but like little little stretches that kind of sound like that sort of spacey atmospheric stuff that you get from like nothing at the seams or sleight of hand or something like that it's got some good dynamics too there's a part two where the guitars very nearly almost drop out and it goes just to the bass and drums and vocals. It's, it's pretty cool. It adds a lot to it. It's a lot of wave and momentum here, for sure. It's funny because 2000, like, you have to think, if they didn't bring this song back, it wouldn't have had a chance to come back at the show. So I don't know if they're just thinking early in the tour, like, okay, we're just going to bring songs back for the hell of it. But maybe something like that is, is like, all right, well, now we do have a fuller arsenal to throw in for an idea like this but they had enough songs where they didn't need deep to do this but it was good to have anything on get right and dissonant here yeah for get right i mean like it's like the third time we've talked about get right in like the last six weeks or something i feel kind of spoiled talking about it but again thought it was a great version and like just wishing it had stuck around and it felt like they nailed it pretty much dead on and wondering why they dropped it after 2003 I think, again, people don't realize how good Mike is on this song and how good Jeff's performance on bass is. Again, you, you have that intro, that beginning, where kind of a little bit, the guitars kind of drop out a little bit, and you're hearing Jeff very, very heavy in the mix. Because that's normal Pearl Jam like that. That's like normal Pearl Jam songs. And when you think of a song that hasn't been used in 20 years, you're thinking, okay, maybe it doesn't have that typical Pearl Jam feel, but I'm like... Maybe I used to feel that, but like I'm on the side of no, this is absolutely the kind of song that they should be bringing back every now and again. So, yeah, this is it's the always year. cross your fingers. This is the year uh, back. we're hoping so. Yeah, we're hoping so. Hopefully, this is a year for just Riot Act and, and all those songs because of the anniversary being thrown back. But who knows what they're thinking? So, Dissident also a very good performance. It just locks into the soaring identity, just takes off, and once again. Everything's being played with purpose and excitement. Here is the important part of all the speeches from this night. It's not Celine Dion, it's this. We're going to let you know what we're attempting to do. 
Since we're playing three shows in your neighborhood, we've worked up about 70 songs for this tour. We thought we would play three nights without repeating a song and get to all of them. However, we thought we were playing 70, but I think we're playing about 105. The main set's about 17. This would put us at about 35 songs a night. I don't want to offend friends and family who might live there, but because there's a trailer park over there, there's a strict curfew. And then the crowd boos, of course, and they says, they can hear you booing. It's best to make friends with them is the way to do it. Invite them to park their trailers out there for the last show. So that's the idea with your support. I'm not going to waste any more time. Back to the job at hand here. And before we started recording, you really said that this next six-song stretch is the strongest of the night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Starting with I Am Mine here, like, this little run of songs is just stellar. Like, there's not a bad performance in there. I think this is definitely the highlight of the show. You can tell, like, the energy of the crowd ramped up once he explained the concept, and now everyone knows what's going on. The band and the crowd are on the same page. You can tell the energy was just flowing back and forth between the crowd and the stage. I Am Mine just absolutely rips. Yeah, I think this might be my favorite section, too. And you go from I and Mine into Even Flow. They're 10 songs in, and they're getting Even Flow out of the way. So people have to be thinking now, okay, well, going to the next two, so anything can happen there. Then Help Help, Immortality in My Tree, and then a little bit on Light Years and even into Evacuation after that. Even Flow is interesting because... You kind of hear from Five Horizons that sort of rekindles what happens here. And it sounds like Ed and Mike had a little bit of a staring match during this as to Ed kind of daring him to keep soloing and continuing. And it's a cool moment because you can kind of tell that that's exactly what Mike is doing because there's a moment where it sounds like he's teasing that up like that doom, 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 doom. and then he kind of goes into a different direction then you think oh maybe he's about to tease it again and, and he goes off into another direction again and I can visualize that I can visualize Ed just kind of staring at him getting oh, in yeah. his face a little bit and being like Mike we know you got more unleash the demon up there with some of the best ones ever because yeah i mean it doesn't stop it just keeps going going on and like he's pulling out all the tricks and like you think being able to transition into like getting loud and quiet and flashy and like we're going back to a little melodic oh it's just a classic mic solo i love this version of even flow and like a lot of times we come on and go oh, the even flow solo was like this or like this but this one deserves a little bit of, of extra notice just because of what happened. And yeah, I can totally picture Ed just going at him like, come on, man, this this is it. Gotta, gotta pull something out, don't stop, keep it going. So yeah, absolutely, thought this was fantastic. Well, you know, you kind of think that after even flow, sometimes that there is sort of that kind of down point in the set list where, all right, we need to take it down for a second. But however, you kind of think that if you see help help on the set list, like, 
that's not a song they were playing very often. It had only been, this was the eighth time that it had been played. So obviously your crowd hasn't really attached to it yet. It's a deeper cut from Riot Act, but it is far beyond what you would consider a cool down or a buffer song. And we talked about this again in the same week that we talked about Get Right, I believe, at uh, Bonner Springs. And boy, when this gets going and they really start to materialize some of the stuff that happens here, it contains like this air of mystery and this darkness to it. And it all kind of spirals and it spirals not in the way that you would say that deep from 1993 spirals, but it spirals in a way more deliberate kind of way where they're controlling the whole thing and it definitely taps into what the root of the song is the evilness of it and kind of the idea of what the lyrics kind of are and it's a shame along with this and and get right that they really did not get a lot of love after this tour but also another thing to mention here is that when you're listening to even flow especially that solo when you, you know you get mike just going as high up on the fretboard as he can just scorching some of those notes like some of that pedal stuff that he's using we talked a lot about the rotosphere pedal that he used a lot during the store and it was a mixture of that with the ibanez tube screamer ts9 Trust me, I don't know this stuff as much as Javier does, but I asked him to tell me so I could tell you guys so he could talk about more important things in this set. But it's on high-speed mode with the Rotosphere Univibe with a Waiwa pedal as well. And, and it's funny because that same exact sound that was developed from the Evenflow solo comes back and help help. So that is what you're hearing out of it and i find that kind of be unbelievable that they would take the same exact thing that made even flow to stand out and just throw it down and help help because why the hell not if you can do that and you can make a help help solo sound like that why not do it more often and you hinted at kind of the darkness and then like the evil sound of help help and i think that comes from the rhythm section i thought jeff and matt absolutely pounded the shit out of this version like stone to just that dirty like pulsating pounding rhythm just really propelled the song along very very well yeah help help was one of the highlights as well and like again i'm with you a shame that it hasn't been played as much as it probably should have been but yeah, again, helped by being in this little mix of a couple of big, heavy songs around it. But yeah, I thought this was a stellar version as well. Let's do Immortality before we get to a special version of In My Tree. Immortality, like, what's there to say? There's an absolutely kind of like in the same category as River Mirror and Black and a couple of those other songs. There's almost not a bad version of it at all. And I think you kind of get the same thing from Mike here. It's three in a row where he has these like piercing solos. And on the back end of that solo, he puts that same kind of piercing, scorching, screeching noise on it. And then what you really feel and what I love out of Immortality the most is that that's an adrenaline rush that he pumps into the rest of the band. So the drive up until the end is at full speed is full gas and they just make this a fun version.
providing a really solid foundation for Mike to just soar on top of. I thought this absolutely went into the stratosphere. Just the jam is, is awesome. And then Stone, either using the acoustic guitar or using that acoustic pedal that changes the sound, really gave it a lot of texture, and the jam was just incredible. Now we get to In My Tree, one of the favorites here on the podcast, cool. and it's not any normal version of In My Tree, and I'm really glad because we haven't talked about the song when doing the 2003 stuff yet, because this is one of the versions where it's the alternate version, where they change things up, obviously, after the Fargo show, they do this really artsy and wild version of this. And then it kind of takes on a new identity, as a lot of people would know from the garden version being the most popular, but also this version as well, where it's a way more open version of this song. And it's more about the pacing. And then it's more about highlighting certain areas of their expertise, like Boom gets a great moment in this, but it's kind of a definitive moment of 2003. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that Fargo version is one of my favorite things of all time. <laughs> Pearl Jam or otherwise. I love this alternate version. I mean, God, imagine if they brought this back, if he just started strumming that, what would happen? I'd probably just melt into a puddle. Another one where the build up to it, when it gets to the end, just makes it absolutely sore. Like, you almost feel like you want to jump off a building and fly. Just an, an A plus version of the song. I love every single one of these versions. Edge shows a lot of vulnerability in his vocals in these versions. Oh, yeah. And the song just marinates and it develops. And when you kind of develop at this more, I guess, deliberate pace here, it just enhances a bit of the storytelling that comes in from the song. And I think that's the most impressive thing that I can think of to say about this is that just the different way of doing it just makes the story of the song feel like they just hit a home run out of this. I think it makes it a little bit more narrative and that it takes you on more of a journey when it builds like that and when he starts it off slow and builds it up. And again, I'm going to give a lot of credit to Jeff on this one. Jeff comes in, it's just one of my favorite bass lines that he's ever done. And when it gets to the ending too, just listening to him anchor it and then making these runs that just soar and add to what Mike is doing, it's just, it all comes together very, very well. Let's invite Javier back in on this one and talk a little bit about the differences as to what makes this version special, as to what makes a regular version of In My Tree special, and kind of compare a little bit as to what they were doing with this that made this sound as good as it did on this tour. this tour is some of the songs are kind of like remixed new versions maybe they're a little different sometimes they you have different tempos or they could be faster or slower 
What I think that is really interesting about In My Tree, it is the fact that I think allows the song to be a little bit more pensative. Don't get me wrong, I love the song in every single version that there is out there. But I really like the fact that you can hear boom in the back and the intro is a little slower. Delays are more present in that part that Mike does a solo. Sometimes you can hear like Stone like really ringing the song in the back. What I mean with that is like giving a little bit more harmony and it's not as frontal as it used to be in the original mix. It makes the song bigger. I think it makes it more like for an arena setting. I really love the tone that they're trying to create with this. It's not a very bright and subtle tone. It's very rich and full. And I think that also the instruments that they pick to perform this version of the song, they're going to speak by themselves. Like basically you're running two less balls or very high gain uh, pickup guitars with it driving the car in the front with that SG with P90 that he was using a lot on the 2003 tour. That's my take on it. I think it really takes a different dimension. It makes the song bigger. I go back to the Live in the Garden DVD that I know that Randy used to watch a lot and I also used to watch a lot when I was way younger and learning all the songs and I think that version makes the perfect fit for that room because it makes it more like an anthem more than anything. I think it always has been an anthem but I just think it was the right fit for that scenario. All right. Thanks again, Javier. Very, very cool. We'll go right back to you because we got that binaural song that's kind of hanging over us. Actually, three of the next four are going to be binaural songs. And we're going to start Light Years here. We're going to go Evacuation. Is it weird that Light Years had only been played like four times at this point? Like after 2000, they had dumped it at this moment, you know? Yeah, a little weird. It's one of those that, like, it had a really strong 2000, and then I think there were a lot of songs on Riot Act that do the same thing, like I Am Mine, Love Boat Captain, are in some of that same kind of vein, and they thought, like, well, maybe Light Years doesn't really fit when you're playing those songs a lot. But, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it didn't disappear. It had been a couple of weeks since they played it at this one. I don't know if we have the Mexico City stats on it, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. it says for the U.S. leg, yeah, this was the oh, last it, time. It, yeah, it was the last time they played it all year. Yeah, Light Years going into evacuation. Now, I thought that Light Years was a fine performance. I feel like because they didn't play it a whole lot, it had, you can tell, kind of a a little bit of a lack of confidence to it, where they're going through it, but you can tell on real strong versions of Light Years, like they're hitting all those spots, those breaks, those pauses that they get, and when Matt kind of comes in there, like, it sounded pretty good, it sounded fine, but when you get a real solid version of Light Years, they're on top of all that. But another nice little touch to this version is that Ed is doing a little vocal improv at the end. I thought was very, very cool on this, too. He did a little bit of that in 2000, so not anything uh, too new. Yeah, that was the highlight for me. I love when he, you know, talked about it on Black Ad Nauseam when he goes off on those little improvs. And yeah, this really set this version apart for me. I love this. But now we go into Evacuation. That's the one, probably one out of the few from Binaural that... You're really not going to see too often after this. But they got to add it in. They played it this year only five times for the whole year. And, and surprisingly, they played it two more times after this date. So they must have heard them doing it and they were like, you know what? We can probably do this a little better. It definitely has its, uh, its spots where it needs some help. But they got through it. They did. They got through it. Sometimes they don't. 
And I'm sure at some point we will touch up on that and, and talk about when they don't. But we wanted to give this one to Javier, too, because he kind of wanted to talk about the whole thing of this being four songs in one. It being another Cameron song where he writes really tricky signatures and all that. So take it away, Javier, on evacuation. waiting for a long time to talk about this song you probably think that I'm crazy you probably think that I'm like what is this guy talking about very personal opinion I think this song is one of the best songs in the Pearl Jam catalog I know I know I know I'm gonna get a lot of a lot of comments about that but anyways that's what I think you know why I think evacuation is one of the greatest songs in the Pearl Jam catalog because it's four songs in within one. It has four different time signatures in within a song. It's Matt Cameron's on his almighty genius creativity pulling out a song. This song is so complex to execute. I mean, these guys are amazing musicians. We know that. But I think that one of the greatest, greatest challenges that they face every single time that they play the song is because every single part is different. Three fours, four fours, six eights, two fours. Not in that order, but those are the four tempos that you get in that track. Imagine as a guitar player or as a bass player that you have to be switching tempos every single time if you have to make it match with the engine that you have in the back. Crazy. Insane song, sounds amazing live. This version is kick-ass. But yeah, I just want to give it a shout to Evacuation. And if you don't like this song, sorry man. But from an execution and from a performance standpoint, it's an outstanding song to listen live. All right, good stuff, as always. We'll have more from Javier in the next week or so on Patreon, who will be doing some on Get Right and Help Help, I believe, that he will go out there and talk about. So wanted to get as much as he wanted to do, because he's excited about all this as, as we are. So wanted to get as much from him in here as, as humanly possible. So you can find that on Patreon. We'll tell you how to join Patreon in a little bit, but there. Oh, great stuff as always from Javier. Yep. Whipping, grievance, little, little things. I thought Matt's role in the middle of whipping was just perfection in this. It's kind of in this song when they're kind of dividing up the verses a little bit, when they're specifically highlighting on that. It's like when he gets into that role there, that is the engine that runs and kind of sets up 
for the next section of the song and that builds to get a little bit faster and then you get to the third section of the song and that is the one where Ed's gonna start going off on and they get a little faster and they really have a motor running with this it's a red hot version of whipping here and a real killer transition going into grievance oh yeah it absolutely smokes and like you're at the point in the set where you've come off all these heavy songs like even flow immortality light years they'll do this where it's like he's going through the set this is all right we need a fast one here to get going again to, to build up some momentum towards the end and yeah whipping does that perfectly grievance another very intense aggressive performance that's usually what happened with this performance in this year ed's going to go into a pretty charged up speech afterwards so you can tell especially at the end every time he's getting a chance to have one of those outbursts he's a little bit more fired up than usual yeah he gets a little defensive even i almost wonder if he was seeing something in the crowd or getting a little bit of a mixed response from it but again you got to remember that this is 2003 and then you don't usually think of it when you think of these shows because like the experiment kind of trumps everything but this is still 2003, Iraq War, Bush, all that stuff still going on. So I wonder if he saw something or if he heard something in Grievance that made him a little bit defensive and want to get a little feisty with this crap. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. And actually, it feels like from his speech that he's looking at the flag. And I don't know where the flag is. I don't know if somebody during the performance decided, oh, okay, it's Grievance, and he's, you know, obviously pissed off politically and all that, so somebody maybe from the crowd pulled out the American flag, maybe they threw it up on stage, something like that, but it seems like he is, in a way, taking a little bit of his frustrations out on that, and he says here, as long as I am free, that's what this stands for, right? Yeah? As long as we're free to come up on a rock and roll stage to say whatever the fuck we want, that's what this stands for, right? It seems like at that point he must be referring to the flag. It seems like he is referring to something as he was about to say that. So I feel like whatever our opinion, definitely questioning not the soldiers or the jobs they were committed to do. It was the foreign policy that was being set up, putting guys in harm's way and wanting to know that there was a real deep reason that it was unavoidable. It seemed by saying that we weren't cloaking ourselves in the flag. But the people disagreeing, it seemed like they were cloaking themselves with the flag and using it for benefit. Since we can come up here and say whatever the fuck we want, have you seen me? I've been spitting a lot up here. Now, this is going to go into, I mean, this is just a 2003 moment that you're just not going to get today because he's usually a lot nicer to other artists now. Don't tell that to good Charlotte. I, no, that was the first thing that was coming through my head on this. Like, woo, he he tore into good Charlotte and, and called them a popsicle out of somebody's asshole. And now he's about to go off on Celine Dion being a, a robot and being programmed by the Sony label and saying essentially that when you watch her sing, she never spits. She pounds her chest like she's got something in there that she's trying to get out. And then, of course... When you mentioned spit, like he has that punchline, of course you know what's coming in all this. Maybe she doesn't spit. I think it's because she swallows. So, yep, everybody excited about that. Chance of Eddie fill up the room. Says, we don't just insult Americans here. We'll go after the Canadians as well. So somehow we'll go from that to a song where the music is poignant. And it's interesting. I really kind of like this last little bit here. He's trying to explain 
a little portion of the song. It seems like he can't come up with the words to describe it. It seems like he wants to say something about it and just can't find the right thing to say. Oh, it's those no-code songs, man. They're shrouded in mystery. We'll never know. But, oh, this performance is excellent. One of the best performances of the night. And you can tell, you know, this is going to be a good song on the way that it builds. Right from the start, like, you know that it's going to be paced out gradually. And by doing that, it gives the song its heart. You hear those moments and he's changing up a little bit. You're kind of getting a sense of how he's feeling in this by saying, I need to know, are we getting something out of this all in fucking trip? And from that moment on, like the crowd starts to explode. The band starts to come in and really you can hear the sheer force behind this song that makes it so special and so powerful. This was an excellent penultimate song to end your main set. Oh, yeah, always love present tense here. But yeah, it's, it's all about that intro. I think this reminded me a lot of the kind of more modern versions of present tense where Mike will really sit on that intro and give it the space and let the crowd come in on it and bring them in before everybody kicks in and it, and it ramps up a little bit. But yeah, Mike and Ed together here, there's something special to it. Fucking true. combination between present tense and porch especially it being how you're going to close the set because we don't really get present tense in that role anymore present tense is kind of used all around and all over the place now but as we saw from last year it could be either plopped into the middle of the set or it was part of that first five songs that you would get so give give me present tense to close the main set and i'm happy i would kill for that but even so like going into porch felt like you're taking this highly emotional and cathartic feeling and capitalizing on it by transferring your energy into a more frenzied moment like you just felt something big you connect with it and then like just ending on that is like okay well now i feel all sorts of ways and i need to kind of get some excitement out so get that excitement out in porch and then it kind of all turns from sort of introspective to just fun again and i wouldn't call this a barn burning version of porch it's not really lightning fast it gets very bluesy in the solo but he gets the crowd hyped up and that's what his shtick is anytime he comes in for the song ed is starting to do the hey 
and the crowd plays back a little bit. And Mike is doing something really cool under when he's doing that. And it's just like this little lick that is kind of almost sort of mirroring what the crowd is doing along it. It was very, very good. But it's making a statement in front of a hot crowd saying, that's the first main set. Hope you guys liked it because we got a lot more going. Well, even before Porch, you didn't mention this. Even before Porch, there's a little bit of noodling by Stone. And it's a little bit of a throwback to 1992 because it feels like the first couple of notes could be hard to imagine. It felt like maybe one of those 105 that got cut down to 97 or whatever could have been hard to imagine. Like it felt like he wanted to go into that little hard to imagine riff, but they pulls it back. It's only for just a split second, and then he goes into something else, and then it transitions into porch. But how cool is it too? They finds a kid up front and lets him do oh, the yeah. one, two, three, four. A nice moment for that kid who's a full grown man now. He got to a show before I did. Son of a bitch. He's got a, <laughs> he's got a cooler dad than you. Oh, I mean, that was assumed by just him being alive, but... (laughs) Then me too. I'm not not one to talk. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that Hard to Imagine, going back to that, like Hard to Imagine would have been really good for that acoustic set. But when you think about that and acoustic sets, well, it was utilized in one not a couple of years later at the Gorge. So it makes a whole lot of sense. All right, it's time to pause for station identification. We're going to go into the Encore. Let's talk about some t-shirts. Let's talk about where you can donate to the podcast. And then we're going to talk about our good friend, Joey Goodsir, for a second. First, let's get into our t-shirt sales for the tour. We got less than two weeks left. If you're listening to this on air date, which is the 28th of June, or even afterwards, it'll be less. But we're coming down to the final stretch on this. And look, our goal was to get 100 t-shirts sold was to get $500 raised for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. We're well on the way. At this point of recording, we have sold 59 shirts. So we got about 40 more to go. And look, I would love to buy more shirts. I would love to pitch into this, but I think that is all going to come from you guys to help pitch in and you know wear a great, comfortable shirt on tour and hopefully see your friends and see all of us whenever we're planning to go anywhere and we'll all meet up and, and wear the shirt and it'll be kind of a cool little bonding thing experience. So we've sold 59. Let's see if we can sell 41 more, you guys. To go and purchase the shirt, all the info is on the website, liveonfourlegs.com slash 2023 tour. You just go head over there. You know how to purchase things. You've bought stuff on the internet before. I don't have to explain that to you, but the help is greatly appreciated, and we really hope that we get to see you on tour wearing the shirt. It's for a really good cause, so hope we get there. Agreed. All right, let's talk a little bit about Patreon. We got one new patron to thank this week. It's very rare that we get a Horizon Leg patron that joins in. It's $10 a month. That's dedication right there. So this is our brand new Horizon Leg patron, Roger F. Souders. Thank you so much, Roger. Awesome. Thanks for joining in. And yeah, it's, it's good to have you aboard. And as I say to everybody, take advantage of everything. If there are evolution episodes you want to listen to, if there are little things, the bonus clips we put up there, 
take advantage of all of that. And to you out there as well, if you're not a patron, there are opportunities where you can take advantage of that. If you are a patron, then you should have taken advantage of the opportunities long ago. But for those that aren't on there, the opportunities you can take advantage of now come within signing up for the free trial. It's a seven-day trial on the bonus leg tier. You get seven days to listen to whatever you would like. And then after the seven days, you can choose to join up on Patreon. It starts you on the bonus leg tier, so it'll only charge you a dollar after the trial ends. And if you want to continue on that, then you will get all of the new content whenever that is available to you. As I mentioned before, the next thing that's coming out is probably Javier's extra bonus moments that he has in from this show and hopefully from the next two shows too. But also on the horizon, a new episode of Hallucinogenic Recipe is coming very, very soon, guys. Nice. So hang on to that thought. A little birdie told me it was going to be about the Monkey Wrench radio shows, specifically from the November leg of the 1995 run. So that should be very, very interesting. So if you want to sign up to Patreon and get all of that, it is patreon.com slash live on four legs. Or if you work apps, you guys all know how to work apps. It's pretty easy. If you know how to purchase a t-shirt, you know how to work an app. Download the Patreon app. And then search for Live on Four Legs, and you can just get it all on your phone. Don't have to worry about listening to any of the content on the website. It works like a normal music player like Spotify or Amazon Music. Or if you wanted to get in and join through the website, you could do it at liveonfourlegs.com and go up to the top. You'll see the Become a Patron button in a big orange button, and that's how you can join over there. Speaking of liveonfourlegs.com, there is a new series that's coming that's going to be attached to the shows that we're doing here. So our good friend Joey Goodsir got in touch about a week or two ago and and asked, hey, I'm available and I want to contribute to the website. I have some ideas. What can I do? And I'm like, well, let's kind of work off of where we got the Mansfield shows here. Let's see if we can have some extra content on that because people are going to want that and be interested in it. So what he came up with is he's going to do three parts, just like the episodes. And for each part, he's going to go through different eras and different tour years that Pearl Jam played and create his own Mansfield type set lists out of all the songs that were performed in those tour years. What do you think about that? He's experimenting. Very much so. And he's very into it. Every time that he comes up with a new one, he's like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I'm looking up and down. I'm like, that looks like the era for sure. So what do you think of that idea? It's interesting. You know, you mentioned he was doing some of the later kind of more current years. I'm curious to see how that plays out because how many shows are they going to play? Are you going to take into account all the intangible stuff that goes with a band in their 40s and, and so on? But it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, I think the ones I'm curious to see are kind of some of the mid-90s ones to see how that would have played out and kind of see what kind of combinations you get there. And Because, like, what was being played, what was leaving. Yeah, it should be a fun read. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think he's adding an acoustic set for every single show. So like 92 would have two shows and the second night would start with, I think, what would be very close to an unplugged set list. I think he had a lot of those unplugged songs in there. And one of the things that I know that I kind of challenged him on, it was like 2009. If you listen to one of those Spectrum shows, Ed said we tried to get all of those songs in there, but we couldn't make it happen. 
So that would be really interesting to see the 2009 one to see how he does and kind of take the spectrum idea of those four shows and turn it into a Mansfield type experiment. So you can find all that on live on four legs.com. It should be up on the homepage, easy to find and we'll promote it throughout all of our social media spots as well. All right. Well, we still got some stuff to talk about. So back to the rock here. Ed says, cheers. How you holding up? Some of us are feeling pretty fresh. We just got massaged in the back. We're ready to go for the second half. Mr. Ament was massaging Mr. Gossard. Mm, no, 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 I take that back. It was actually six eight-foot Amazon lesbians massaging us. We're going to start this next one quiet, so no one in the trailer park can complain. This one is a request. As a matter of fact, the next three are all going to be requests. He doesn't say from who, doesn't say how they all kind of came to be, but thumbing my way, elderly woman behind the counter in a small town and smile are all going to come from requests here. To me, I think, I think I liked thumbing my way the most out of all this, but I think that small town has a really big highlight in it. So we'll just kind of go in order on that. It's just one of those warm classic versions of Thumbing My Way, like directly lifted from the album, but giving you that heart that you get when you hear it live and you're hearing Ed's voice directly in your ear. You're just drawn in and captivated by all of that. Like, you know the Ben Arroyo version, you know how captivating that version is, but this is like that with just being in an outside venue. It just sounds like it has all that heart and all that imagery all drawn into it oh yeah and to me this is as good as ed has ever sounded like his voice is just in absolute peak form on thumbing my way it sounds incredible it's got all the timber and all the vulnerability and all the stuff that we talk about like it's all there in this version it's right in his wheelhouse sounds amazing just like put headphones on just listen to him you can get all the nuance and all the power and everything. It's all there in this version of Thumbing My Way. Yeah, it was very impressive. crowd was really really into this version and speaking of the crowd you got small town coming in next and that's obviously a big crowd participation song but i think it was still evolving into that i don't think it was a big crowd participation song in every spot where they played the song but i wonder if you do the evolution of this one which obviously there's so many that we got to do and so many more down the line first we got to do the next evolution episode which happens to be do the evolution so there you go for that and to get excited about that for everybody joining on patreon out there but it really gets taken over by this crowd here oh, I just want to scream. 
sing. It's the way that the crowd comes in on this and the way that Ed makes their inclusion be felt and he gives them the part to sing. After the whole climactic moment of the song kind of devolving into the end, usually it would be right into the hearts and thoughts, but they kind of do that, take a breath and play those open chords a little bit so they can point to the crowd. I don't know if they were doing that quite yet on this song, but... Yeah, I, I can't they, remember another version where the song actually stops for the crowd. Right. Yeah. Right, but Ed says the crowd take it, and the crowd take it it does. This is interesting from a stats perspective, too, because like this song is 10 years old at this point. I'm looking at live footsteps here. It only been played 180 times. And this 2003 tour, as we sit here in 2023, we're in the second half of their live career now. We're past the halfway point of the, all the shows that they played. I think we're getting close to like 1100 or something like that. This is in the early 600s somewhere of their whole career. So only 180 shows for Elderly Woman. And then you look at the last 20 years, it's been played over 300 times. So yeah, definitely in 2003, it picked up and took off in the crowd as a big part of that. I think when we go back and do the evolution on this, we'll look back on this run as being a big catalyst for the crowd, taking this song and running with it. And that's not an uncommon theme for this era and for the song's evolution. Like This is where a lot of songs really get their steam going and really start connecting with that crowd. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the band realizing that there can be a connection with the crowd. So, good on that. It wasn't yet the kind of anthemic, theatrical version that you get now. Well, speaking of another song that didn't really get its due when it came out, but is played a lot more now than it used to be. Smile and the switcheroo comes here. Stone on bass, Jeff on guitar. And this show is kind of in the same boat as Light Years and Evacuation, where I think all these songs have been played four times in total. Light Years has been played four. This was the last one of Light Years. This was the last one of Smile. And then Evacuation would be played two more times. This was the third version of this show. And they don't play it a whole lot, so you don't get a lot of the crowd inclusion. I don't think that this was really 2003's evolution point for this song. I think it comes a little bit later, maybe in the 2010s. Yeah. But it's just interesting. Again, they got to utilize all the songs. And as Ed would say after the song, this is one that after we play it, we usually say goodbye on, which we know Smile is not really a closer anymore. This is a pretty normal spot for it if we hear it today. But yeah, good performance. I, I think that it had been made into that full turn of being a big celebrational song just yet, though. Right. But here, I think after Small Town, it's like the party is on here. I think when you're switching instruments like that, it's going to add a little bit of a fun aspect to it. You know, the crowd gets the visual of, you know, seeing Jeff on guitar. From here on out, you can tell they've already switched on to party mode on this point. The end part of Encore 1, I think, is them just having fun and kind of like reveling in the fact that they've got through night one. The crowd's in on it, the party's on, and they're looking forward to night two and beyond. Well, after hearing those three songs, Ed is going to talk to the crowd again, gives a little shout-out to Stone and Jeff after their little switcheroo, and then says, 
Tonight, I'd like to say it's not the lyrics that drive this music, it's not guitar chords, it's not wisdom nor greed, not anything except the drums and Matt Cameron. And then in between, I thought that the next song was going to end up being a cover, because in between, you hear Stone playing a little bit of the chord progression that kind of sounds like it could have been Gimme Some Truth. Mm. And Gimme Some Truth doesn't get played in this run, which is disappointing, because I was hoping that we would get to it once, when covering these shows, it didn't get played a whole lot, but that's disappointing another, that we didn't get to it. I really like yeah, that song. Another one of the 105 that didn't make the cut. And yep, 97. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, he says, we're fortunate to have Matt, but we're also fortunate to have a guy who made a deal with the devil and plays guitar like he does. And Mike McCready, he made a deal with the devil. We get to play with him. He's going to hell. We're going to heaven. And then even a little bit before the song starts, it sounds like Stone is still playing those chords that kind of sound like Give Me Some Truth. And then when they kick into State of Love and Trust, Ed sort of laughs. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a joke. I don't know if, if Stone's playing a joke on him or they're playing a joke on the crowd. I don't, I don't know. But Ed just kind of starts cracking up because of the misdirection. Yeah, I don't know if it was a misdirection or something else. That's the one, again, I would love to see a video. Or if someone you know who was there remembers that moment, let us know. But... Yeah, I think it gives a little bit more kind of vulnerability and off-the-cuffness to it. it. You know, they're not taking themselves too seriously at this point on the show. Yeah, and you can tell, again, everything is really loose to this point. You said that it's now the party atmosphere, and every time that Ed gets the opportunity to say, listen here, he just holds that out, and usually he's known to be doing that at the last section of the song to kind of get out to the end so it feels like that big moment but he holds that out on all three of these here and that's kind of what makes this one stand out a little bit so I don't even know if he really did that a lot at the time either but yeah a lot of excitement you know State of Love and Trust is firing right through and then I feel like it's like as far as Pearl Jam songs go the only one in this encore to feel like big energy song when you think of the big energy songs you kind of think of the original ones but i mean you can't say that leaving here doesn't have energy but i think state of love and trust kind of stood out because of that you know this encore is a little bit disjointed and you get the deep cut then you get the big crowd one then you're going into smile then state of love and trust like on paper it doesn't make a lot of sense but when you think of it it just is like they're just having fun. They're not taking themselves too seriously here. Just let loose. Like, you're throwing in songs they haven't played in a long time. They're throwing things out there. So, yeah, it, it works. You can tell, like, they're in good spirits. And, yeah, Mike, again, gets one more moment to shine. How about this for a Leaving Here solo section? It goes, this is the first time I've ever heard this. Boom is first. Ed is second. Then we get Jeff. And Mike finishes it out. Just again, a lot of energy here. Just another yeah. example, as you were saying, the band's just having a good time doing this. Yeah, I mean, leaving here is they were using it a bunch of times with Cedar Kenny and coming up on stage and then bringing people up and having a good time. So, yeah, just a quick one, you know, two and a half, three minutes, get everybody going and then back at it for Encore 2. Okay, kicking off the Encore 2 here, Ed says, thanks so much. And now John's favorite point of the show is about to come. 
Uh-huh. And I'm going uh-huh. to lay some news out on you after I mention this here. It says, thanks so much. I was talking to a guy that's in one of the great bands on this planet, a guy named Ian McKay in a band called Fugazi. He and his guys have run a label called Discord for years. And we were talking today that the reason that you started to get into music was to be part of a community. No matter how big a community is, you're part of that community in order to communicate. After having that conversation today and seeing how many of you are out there knowing that we're playing for all three nights, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to communicate with so many of you. Before we get into the second part, it's about like his ukulele and bootlegs and stuff like that. First of all, I want to mention that last week in the intro of the show, we played a song by a band called The Suspect Down. And that's our good friend, Mike, who has been on the podcast before as a patron and a guy that I met over in Fenway in 2018 and, and instantly became fast friends with. And that's his band that he drums for. And we've been trying to get their new songs in on the podcast as much as possible. So their producer that they've been working with has been Don Ziantara, who oh, yeah. produced a ton of Fugazi stuff. Yeah, a lot of Discord stuff down in her ear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I it's think they're based, they're like DC slash Virginia based. So of course it's it's the area. And I don't know how it happened, but some way they were able to go to the Discord house and get that legendary minor threat photo from the stoop. Sure. So they did the photo. And I guess Mike had a contact with Ian. Maybe he asked Ian if, if they could do that. And then he responds to him and he's like, hey, glad it all worked out for you. Just listen to the last song. You guys are doing a good job. And like fucking Ian McKay sent you an email. That's very pretty. Nice. That's pretty awesome. That, so, that is that is very cool. Yeah, that's funny. Like they had just played in Bristol the night before this, like 30 miles outside D.C. Mm-hmm. And they had tagged No More Pain from Embrace, which is Ian's post minor threat pre Fugazi band. So he definitely had that on his mind. I'm sure probably Ian was there. I think that that show I might have even mentioned he was there. So yeah, this is very cool. And then like again, mid 2003, Fugazi had already played their last show. They had played their last shows in 2002 and then gone on hiatus. So they had not officially broken up. But at the time, we didn't even know that Fugazi had played their last shows already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I want to bring up is about community, and I like that Ed yeah, yeah. is referencing community here because. Again, like it's so tough when you kind of dot the map a little bit on these shows and you're not doing every single one from every single night. You know, you do a couple and you can get a couple in a row here and there, but it's hard to kind of know within each town what he's thinking about, especially of what the fan community was then and what it would become in the next couple of years after this, because it just grows exponentially from there. So him giving a shout out to them is important. And again, before that, it kind of felt like maybe it was just a fandom. And what this band has created for all of us is a platform to share something important and special in common with one another. And it's kind of one of those things. It's so unique for a band to be able to do that. You can come from all different perspectives from this band. They have so much different material. People have gone to so many different shows in so many different places and had these songs that are played feel like they meant the world to them. So, yeah, I, I like that he brought that up. And I love that 
any chance that he gets to now just kind of address how important it is to have this community. And not a lot of people really think about it because the community is really fan based. But like, if you were to say that this was a cult, it is obviously the cult leader of this. And <laughs> I mean, some people might think it's cultish, but it's just, again, a lot of people who love the same exact thing and are hooked on it for a very, very long time. And we're just yeah. thankful that Ed appreciates that we love it so much. You know, it's especially relevant now coming out of the pandemic years, as it were, where we missed live music for a while and we missed that communal aspect of this. So a little bit timely for us to be talking about it now when that stuff is kind of coming back and you're seeing bands go out and you're seeing people actually getting out to live music again. And yeah, it's it's really, really good feeling. But you know, people are familiar with the comedian Chris Gethard. I think he was on a podcast a couple of years ago and I can't remember which one it was, but the guy had asked him like, oh, you know, who of anyone now could you see like being a cult leader? And I think he is at Morrissey. Um, like a, but the real answer is Eddie Vedder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think that being a Pearl Jam fan is the one time that I don't want to use the Groucho Marx quote of any club that wants me as a member is a club I don't want to be in. You yeah. know, that's not the exact quote, but that's the only time I, I can kind of take that and say, you know what? No, if they want me as a member, yeah. then I fully embrace that. So to finish out here, Ed says, I know bootlegs will come out and people who were here and people who weren't here will hear them. And this might sound overly emotional, but if they were here, they would understand. And then he says, give a great hand for the Buzzcocks who've been opening up for them for a couple of shows at that point. And then introduces everybody to Luke the Uke, who I guess is Clarence's dad or actually his mom because he says i don't know if it's a boy or a girl and then kind of comes to the realization that it's a girl so luke might be clarence's mother oh yeah clarence, clarence didn't come around until until much much later luke was That's, the original yeah i oh i know luke is the original but clarence is like i mean she had all that time like when ukes grow up and get older they can have little uke babies and i think that once luke kind of went through the ringer with ed and he did the ukulele songs he was able to be like okay clarence You've been promoted, so wasn't I think that it's after just, wasn't that after Clarence Clemens died from the E Street Band? I think that's when he took sure. on that. Yeah, it would make sense. Been, I'm not fully yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that was when he took on Clarence when he named it after that one. Yeah. But anyway, he goes off on a little bit about like kids getting good grades and talks about the future of America. I know they teach about this and that and the other thing, but this song is about the other thing. We're gonna do "Soon Forget" and "Bush Liga" right here before closing up with "Fucking Up." Look, Soon Forget, this is the perfect version of Soon Forget because it's exactly what you expect out of it. The song is just a little bit out of a tune or like plucks the wrong chords at one point that sound out of tune. And then, of course, you get to the one line that gets to him every single time. Put the money down, he's stiffening. He's stiffening. Every single time he does it. 
So yeah. if you're just thrown off by it, maybe change the line. You know, maybe like turn it into a hometown thing. I don't know, but it's it is so constant. It is almost like as if you were to hear alive with the solo every single time. It's basically supposed to be there. Yeah, it comes very close to falling apart and getting too fucked up to recover from. But yeah, it pulls it together. You know, I think there's only been a couple where he's had to really like stop and start again. And I think the clapping threw him off for a while too, but I didn't hear too much clapping in there. So I think there's a little bit at the beginning, but it doesn't last through. So that, that helped for sure. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Crowd does appreciate it at the end. And again, at that point, like it's still a novelty thing for Ed to play the uke. And it's not like part of Ed's musical personality just yet. So it is still an exciting thing. Bush leaguer is interesting because he has the mask with him, and according to Five Horizons, they say that the crowd has sort of a chilly, confused reception to it, and he's doing, it's not like with the jacket, it's not Nassau Coliseum at all, but he has the mask, he makes out with it and tosses it into the crowd, so he does the shtick, or at least like the low end of the shtick there, but he's also like, again, kind of, I guess, going back to some of the frustrations that he had after Grievance. He's changing some of the lyrics, and he's a little boy. He's not a Texas leaguer. Drilling for fear. He keeps doing it. So there's a lot of just that anti-Bush pent-up frustration that he has in him. And it's just interesting as to this being the penultimate song of the night, because, again, the decision here has to be, okay, well, when do we want to play alive? When do we want to play rockin'? When do we want to play Baba? even going into like Ledbetter or something like that, they have to make all these decisions as to where everything goes. And you lose that if they decide not to do it at this show like they did. So Bush Leaguer, which is usually an encore song anyway, sort of gets the middle part here. It's a little awkward because you had all that party stuff that was going on and Soon Forget is at least fun. But Bush Leaguer, before going into fucking up, is kind of like the down moment a little bit that almost sort of loses him. Oh, yeah, it takes a left turn for sure. As fun and kind of party atmosphere as the end of Encore 1 is, the end of Encore 2 is, is not that. And Bush Leaguer, musically, too, such a weird ending. Like, goes off on just a completely different riff and, like, different key almost. Like, very, very strange ending to Bush Leaguer. Stone goes off into something completely different. Yeah, listening to that extension, like I can see a lot of the fans, I guess they're attention waning a little bit. And again, you're thinking to yourself, all right, like last little bit of the night, you're looking at the clock. It's almost 11. What have you? Maybe it's past 11 at this point. It's like, all right, when are we going to have fun again? And we're about to fucking up is going to close the show. What did you think of this version? I thought this version was awesome. Oh, you got a absolutely epic. Yeah, you got a lot from Boom on this. It was almost as if it was like a mock Crazy Mary section because you got Boom doing his thing, and right after Mike took over. Yeah, Mike's not getting out of here without putting on one last show. And yeah, the solo goes on just like Even Flow solo goes on for a long time. Yeah, I love this version of Fucking Up. Just absolute stomps. And that's the way that you're going to close out the first night of this. And Fucking Up is a closer. It is usually sure. in a closer role. So it's not not normal, but it's still like not one of those signature songs. So maybe the idea here is 
because they're going out the next night. Maybe it's just sort of a cliffhanger that you're like, okay, you and can tell all those they, two shows together, and that's what you get. They held a lot back on this night, like throwing an even flow, throwing a porch, but like nothing else really. None of the other big time stuff, like no corduroy. Like I think you had mentioned before we started, that I didn't even realize there's nothing from Yield at the show. Right. All that stuff that they were doing is, is coming on the next two nights. So they held a lot back on night one, and you're going to start to see that stuff creep in on night two. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's all part of the story here. And it's as fascinating to just break it down just by listening and talking to it than it is just by looking at the damn thing. So this is the Riot Act night, like a lot of Riot Act. Yep, for sure. All right, let's get into some song picks here for top three of the show. What do you got? I will go number three, give me a present tense. Number two, even flow. Number one, in my tree. Should be no surprise. Yeah, that is no surprise there. I'm going to give a little credit to Deep at this show, because again, when you hear something that is just stands out on this and it's Mike that stands out and Mike sounds incredible. Then you really kind of get to the song and you're like, you know what? You can tell the difference. You're going to remember this version of deep. And I don't know if that's considered to be a popular version from this show, but I considered it to be one of my favorite performances from that night. So I'm going to give that the number three spot. And then I'm very similar to you. I'm going to go present tense number two, and I'm going to go in my tree. Number one, those are my favorite moments of the night for sure. Now we got to talk about rating the show. And we can go a couple of different directions as to how we do it here. I think there's an idea in mind that we got to rate all three, or we rate it all as a trilogy together. What would you rather do? Oh, we got to do each one individually. Okay. So if one of these shows doesn't get a 10, then we're only putting one or two or whatever gets rated as tens into the hall of fame. Right. Right. Okay. That's tough because they all three combined definitely deserve the hall yeah, of fame nod. You know what I mean? No brainer. When you put them all together, that's why you got to break it up and make it interesting. All right. Well, let's make it interesting then. Yeah. Where are you going with this? Why well, I'm not going to give this one a 10. I think the stretch, like we talked about, from I Am Mine to Light Years is as good as anything. But there are some points where I think it misses, and that's going to happen when you're doing something like this, when you're playing a bunch of songs that you don't normally play, when you're when you're holding some of the big moment songs back for the other two nights when they know they're not going to be repeating those nights. So this one, I think, is the one that doesn't have as many big moments as the other two nights do. So I'm going to drop this one a little bit. This one gets a nine from me. Nine, huh? Not even giving it a half point there. Huh? Nine's very, very good. It's in the, of course it is. It's in, it's in the top 100, 125 shows that they've ever played, but it's not in that top 50, top 75. Well, I'm giving it a 10 and okay. it's because of everything that kind of gets tacked onto it. I love this show. I thought the show was awesome. I think, the idea of the show and the excitement of the story around it sort of supersedes the slow points in the set, as you mentioned, like, you know, soon forget and Bush leaguer and some of those other moments that it didn't quite feel like the normal way that Pearl jam does things. I don't care. Is it my favorite way to build a set list? No, but I really don't give a shit in this show because this show 
on a grander scale is so much more important than that. And out of all three of these shows, you needed like a deep cut night. And I guess, you know, while the third show had the acoustic with so many rare stuff and different stuff, like this show does feel like overall is, is a pretty rare one too. But I got no problems with a couple of songs being held off for the next two nights because, you know, those two nights need them too. They really do. I thought it was fine. Even flow, porch, you got small town. That was a big moment. It lacked a little bit when it comes to typical closers, but I'll put that to the side for now. This is a 10 for me. All right. And if it's any shocker, maybe the rest will follow suit. I was going to so. say, it's gonna be, I, can, I can see this being a straight run for you. We'll see. I'm not going into it with any preconceived notions. I'm going to listen yeah. to the show and see how it plays out. Yep, that's totally fair. I already listened to two. Mm. I don't think I like two as much as I like this one, but I'll give it the full rundown when we're ready to do this for next week. So if you haven't been paying any attention, we're doing night two next week, you guys. So any kind of tee up that you want to do for that kind of things that you're excited about getting to? Yeah, just getting into some of those yield songs. Yeah, do the evolution. I think there's one in particular that this is kind of its coming out party, kind of the beginning of a really good story. So that that's the one I'm looking forward to the most, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's very funny because when you put it against the other 82 performances that it gets played, yeah, this is very, very, very early on. So this was totally yeah. unexpected. And the first time yeah. that this song, Low Light, was played at anywhere but a bridge school show. So that is going to be real fun to talk about. And there's some real, real interesting things about that version that you just don't hear as part of that song now. Yeah, River Mirror is going to be a really good moment from this night. There's going to be a lot of covers in the encore, and both of them actually. We're going to get to a Pixies tag that we've talked about earlier in the year. We're going to get that again. And yeah, it should be fun. Like anytime you get God's Dice as the third song in, you don't really know what to expect. So also you get Rival too, which is right. You never yeah. talk about Rival. Pixies, another uh, Massachusetts band. So of course, a local flavor there. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you like that, then show up for the next two because the next two will be as good as that. Hopefully, we'll tell more stories. We'll talk about the set more. We'll get Javier in more. I'd love to get Javier in on low light for next week. So keep that in the back of your mind. But if you like this and this is your first time listening to the podcast and you're not subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or any of the dozens of other places that you listen to podcasts, then make sure you do so. And if you are on Spotify or Apple, rate us. Hopefully by doing all these and doing the service to the community that we do, that we deserve the five stars, but obviously everybody's got different opinions. So if we don't deserve the five stars, that's interesting because we don't get a lot of people that say that we don't deserve it. So would love to know why, but would love to see you guys pitch in, give us a rating, and then tell the world and the Pearl Jam community why they should listen to us. Because we can talk till we're blue in the face about this and tell you guys as much as we can about what we're doing and psych you guys up and everything like that. But if the person that's looking for something good Pearl Jam wise is looking for a podcast, it's your voice that is going to help them press play and check it out and see what's going on. So hopefully 
a lot of people are tuning in. Hopefully there are a lot of people tuning in for the first time on these. So, And hey, we've got Pearl Jam shows in about two months, so we're starting to ramp up towards that too. Oh yeah, once this is over, that all, all of our attention will go to that, we yep. promise yep. you. So yeah, hey, enjoy the ride, because it's just exciting right now. We're both having a lot of fun just talking about this, and especially from reading your stories too, it seems like you guys are really into it as well. So let's call it here. This may be the end, we're here, but not for much longer, and although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. All right, gotta get ready in the next night, and hopefully you guys got your popcorn ready, because it's only going up from here. So, see you next week. It's best to make friends with them. How many were here last night? How many of you, uh... Hey, shut the fuck up, I'm trying to talk, you fucking asshole. Okay, uh, so some of you were here last night, but how many people stayed up and saw the sunrise? That's what I want to know. I don't believe you. Anyways, that's why I'm so grumpy, so don't fuck with me, you little prick. But yeah, last night, you know, sometimes you live for the moment, and the interesting thing about living for the moment is there's a moment right after it, and a moment right after it, and then you keep living for the moment, and then before you know it, the sun's come up, and... So when they say live for the moment, live for the moment, but then go to sleep. Thank you.